This is Sam. This is Alex. And this is Southpaw. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. Today on the podcast, we have meditation teacher, Alex Ferguson. Hi, Alex. Hey, Sam. How's it going? So you're a philosopher by training, getting your PhD in the University of Canterbury in New Zealand, which is where you still reside. Yeah, that's true. We've also known each other since childhood, so we go way back. (laughs) Yeah, all the way back. So let's talk about that with philosophy. Did you have a specialty? Like, you know how a lot of philosophers have something they specialized in, like existentialism or, I don't know, analytic philosophy or something? Um, well, I think a lot of the things like existentialism and so on were pretty well dead by the time I got to, got to school. Um, so it was mainly analytics when I got there. Uh, and so I guess the two subcategories I got really heavily into would be like philosophy of language and philosophy of science. And then for the PhD, it was uh, mainly systems theory and a lot of stuff with neuroscience. So for people who don't know what analytic philosophy is, can you explain to them briefly what that is? Oh, okay. Um, so I guess eventually people thought, uh, we're done coming up with brand new great ideas. What if we started tearing down the great new ideas of the past? And so um, analytic philosophy is an excellent way to uh, analyze the truth of things. And so get way more concerned with the, the arguments themselves than the, the big giant propositions about meanings of life or anything like that. So a lot of people who've studied analytic philosophy, they sometimes end up in like the tech world or mathematic world or programming world, right? Yeah. I guess the logical thinking that you need in analytic philosophy transfers over well to those things. Yeah. And I mean, a huge part of the stuff that you do in terms of logic classes at university will be cross papers. So like guys from comp sci or mathematics will also be doing logic because, yeah, like you say, it's all very connected. And so for people who don't know what logic is... And I've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but I think a lot of people misuse the term logic. They don't know what that actually means. Logic just means consistency or coherency of thought. Like you could have a movie and within the world of the movie, the movie can be logical because it's staying consistent to itself. Yeah, I guess you're more concerned with logic when you get into it. You become more concerned with the structure of the argument than the actual content of the argument. So you're like, it's kind of like algebra. We're like, A equals B. doesn't really matter what A or B really are. It's just like, oh, okay, well, these are um, pointers, I guess, for stuff we can talk about later. And so as long as the, the whole argument makes sense from a yeah, logical perspective. So that's why logic transfers over so well to computer languages or programming, because you have to stay consistent to the structure of that language, that computer coding language. Right, yeah. So that seems very far removed from the world of meditation. So before we even get into how you even got to meditation, what is meditation? Because I think meditation, along with mindfulness, are terms that people just use, but they might not even know what those things mean. And also, maybe they use it interchangeably, like meditation and mindfulness as being the same thing. So 
let's define some terms. What is meditation? Oh, man. Um, it's a pretty huge umbrella term. And like you say, there's a whole bunch of different baggage associated with it, just like the guys wearing robes and the incense and then sports stars and all kinds of stuff. But meditation is basically uh, the best definition would be training the mind's ability to focus. This is what meditation is. And there's a whole bunch of different things you can train the mind to focus on. So whether that's um, inquiry into a question, like what is God, for instance, or um, uh, sensation. So what's uh, what's breathing like or uh, weird visualizations. So sinking that three pointer or doing really good in the exam tomorrow, that kind of stuff. People use it for all kinds of different stuff, but it's mainly just training the ability of the mind to focus. So meditation then can be also philosophical then, right? You can be meditating on ideas. Yeah. And you saw that a lot in um, the old monks for the Christian tradition would do a lot of meditation on topics like what is God or uh, the Trinity. How can you have three things that's also one thing, but it's also three things like that kind of stuff. So they'd just be <clears throat> entirely quiet for months on end, just thinking about these questions. So yeah, you can use it for inquiry that way as well. And is meditation interchangeable with mindfulness? Are they the same thing or are they different? Yeah, I think mindfulness fits under as a type of meditation. It certainly is a type of meditation, but it's um, all about paying attention to stuff uh, rather than trying to bring about some kind of outcome. So it's not an outcome or intentional kind of meditation. You're not doing meditation to become grateful or <laughs> wise or something like that. Sounds like from your definition, mindfulness is the outcome because you said meditation is the training, right? So I guess in a way then meditation is the training to be mindful and then mindfulness is the thing you're doing. Yes, yeah, it's, it's really the activity of meditation. Um, but people get into mindfulness for all kinds of crazy reasons. But uh, I think if you're strict about it, mindfulness is just, just paying attention to stuff that's happening. Because I heard when... Eastern meditation was first being brought over to the West. Somebody was looking at the old Sanskrit and was looking at the definition of a term that was associated with meditation. And I think the term is SETI or something like that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Am I saying it right? Do you know? I don't think so. I'm not a big uh, Sanskrit scholar, so I couldn't really, <laughs> I couldn't correct you. But there is a Sanskrit word, right? And uh, mindfulness wasn't actually a fateful translation the person translating it was, I think he was a Christian scholar. So he was trying to use a word that fit into like something he knew from his context. So from the Bible, there was like some passage about being mindful about something. And it's like, oh, then we could define this or translate this as mindfulness. But it was always kind of a, never a perfect translation. So that's why I think it's caused so much confusion because there's so many people like, what you're calling mindfulness, that's not what we really mean when we say it. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> there's, there's a whole host of problems there. Because the word you use is awareness, and I think that's a more appropriate term, right? Yeah, <clears throat> I think it's a lot less. Um, because if I say, what's a mind? There's a whole bunch of different answers out there. But if you're like, are you paying attention? Then that's a pretty yes or no. Like, you know what I'm talking about. You're like, are you driving the car? Yeah. Are you paying attention to make sure you're not running red lights? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. But if you're like, are you being mindful of red lights? You'd be like, I don't know. Maybe? What? What are we, what are we talking about now? So yeah, there's an awful lot there. <laughs>
And I think the religious connotation still is there, whether you're thinking of it secular or not. Are you being mindful? There's like this kind of God is watching you and this kind of guilt associated with it. If you're not being mindful of your your daily prayers or being a good person or whatever it is, right? Yeah. And I mean, if you look at the, the history of interaction going back for the East and the West, like you say, a lot of the translations came across um, like Jesuits and other type of missionaries would run into the, these people and be like, oh, um, these people are, are nihilists because they don't believe in any particular deity or, oh, they're really talking about about this when they're talking, when this, this word means, this kind of means something like this. Um, and so if you don't really have a ready length word for that other word, uh, you get into all kinds of crazy translation troubles. It's funniest with German, I think, where they just squanch all those different words together to create one super word. And then we're like, ah, we don't have a word for that in English, but I guess in German, it means something like sadness about meetings going on too long or something like that. That's why like when you are working with let's say german philosophy right they want you to actually learn the german language instead of reading the translated stuff because the translation doesn't do it justice yeah and anytime you read any kind of translated philosophy what you're really getting is what this guy thinks that guy was talking about (laughs) so you're not really getting the actual original straight from the source you're getting like oh it's kind of it's passed through another couple heads to get to you first and they, they think he's talking about this but he could have been entirely different. It's kind of like subtitles, right? In movies where you read the subtitles, but if you actually speak the language, you're like, that's not quite what they're saying. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's better than dubs. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's not get into dubs versus subs, okay? We're, oh, true. All right. All right. That's too controversial for us. These hot button topics. Yeah, let's keep it clean here. All right. So the type of meditation that you do and that you teach, is it more of a secular meditation? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, this. No deities or anything involved, no four-armed dudes or elephant-headed gods, nothing like that. Is it still just as good if it's secular? (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it's actually ever not secular, to be perfectly honest. Why do you say that? Well, the practice itself um, is, uh, like I said, it's training the brain to to become more able to focus on stuff um, or training your ability to focus. And so it's, uh, it's this really great mode of inquiry. It's like building a microscope. It's not necessarily doing science, but it's incredibly helpful. Later, you're going to be use that microscope to look at little tiny things. And so the same with mindfulness. It's like, well, you're building this ability to focus. It'll be incredibly useful if later you were like, well, um, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe I should look at the nature of God or something like that. So you can be, it very quickly becomes associated with religious stuff because it's this really great tool for doing, I guess, <laughs> the kind of inquiry work that people in religion like to do. But that doesn't mean it is necessarily religious. It's actually an entirely secular practice. So if it is a secular practice, then there's nothing stopping it from being a bad practice, like where it can make you, let's say, a worse person than when you started. Because let's say you're just focusing on yourself all the time. You're just meditating on yourself. You could just come out a bigger, like, let's say, a asshole CEO or something. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I guess that's one of the main critiques when people are like, so you're just basically wallowing, I guess, <laughs> or uh, navel gazing for hours on end. You're like, oh, I'm such an interesting topic of, of inquiry. I should just look at myself all day, every day. Yeah, because it could be secular from good and evil too, right? It's just like you're going to use it however you're going to use it. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's why uh, chopping out outcome from the practice of mindfulness is so constantly important and really difficult to do because all the time 
people who start up mindfulness are like, I'm doing this to, to get something. Like I want to get more relaxed or uh, a better life or more grateful or something or other. <laughs> so yeah, in that way, it can really quickly turn into just another selfish thing that we do for selfish reasons. It's just a thing you can do <laughs> and you can use it however you want. Yeah, exactly. It's, it'd be weird, I guess, if you'd spent a lot of time doing mindfulness and you turned out to be like a worse or more selfish person because of that. That would be, that would be a strange outcome, but I mean, anything's possible. <laughs> well, there's like this joke that I've seen go around where somebody says they started meditation and now they're like the best ever. They're just like the greatest version of themselves. Like their sense of self is so great. And then the other person in the meme says, if that's so, then keep going. You need to meditate longer. <laughs> yeah. Because that, that obviously is a sign that you haven't meditated long enough because you shouldn't feel that way at the end of this. Yeah, it's, you're heading in exactly the wrong direction. But it's that wrong direction that gets you into it in the first place. So yeah, that'd be, I guess, after a solid week of practice. You're like, I'm the greatest. <laughs> I managed to hold my focus for 10 seconds. Yeah, I love myself even more than when I started. <laughs> I didn't realize how great I was until I started meditating. But now I can really see clearly I'm the best ever. Yeah. And that is like 90% of how it's sold out there. Yeah. Well, it's really hard to sell things unless uh, you make it seem like the person doesn't have the stuff already and needs it to be good or happy or whatever. I think that's that's advertising 101, right? Is like you have a lack and this thing will fill that, that lack or absence. So I don't consider you a selfish person. So <laughs> how did you get into meditation then? I've got a I guess a background family style. Uh, my mom was huge into meditation and uh, I never really got into it. And then, um, yeah, a couple, that's just like 10 years ago now, I went through those quakes in Canterbury and uh, that was quite a stressful situation. Uh, I haven't been like a stressful guy. I still am not really a stressful guy. For people who don't know, can you explain a little bit about what those quakes were? Oh, okay. Yeah, there were uh, two main giant quakes. Uh, the first one hit, at, I want to say, like 2 o'clock in the morning. It might have been midnight. What year? And that was, gosh, it would have been 2010, 2009? 2009. And, um, yeah, just down in Christchurch. And uh, a lot of the building material down there was um, not very great. There was, like, a bunch of very old brick-style buildings, which aren't super great in earthquakes. Uh, plus, the whole city was built on a swamp. <laughs> So uh, I had a lot of liquefaction and a lot of crazy back and forth shaking action, which is not not great. Um, so that uh, that first quake hits, and that was quite stressful. And then the second quake hits. It was under it was like a six point six, um, which for a little tiny provincial town um, without stringent earthquake building requirements <laughs> was pretty devastating. But the epicenter was right in Christchurch. Yeah, it was right under the belly of the city, basically, and up into the hills. And how many hours apart were they? Uh, it was actually it was a solid one. It was a solid bunch of time. Oh, so people were just starting to recover, thinking, okay, now we need to rebuild. And then, <laughs> then the really big one hit. And it was bigger than the first one. Yeah, that one hit. Um, that was at like noon. So people were out and about in the city, like getting lunch and so on. And uh, basically, a bunch of stuff in the city fell over on people. And so... <laughs> Um, yeah, that was, that was way, way worse than the first one, which happened super early in the morning where all the big, all the big buildings took some damage, but people were mainly at home snoozing. So 
the stuff that fell off them didn't bonk people or, or kill anybody. But the difference in time, the gap seems like that would make it even more scary because then it caught people off guard again and it was bigger. So I can imagine then people are even more anxiety ridden than if they were just back to back. Yeah. And then afterwards, as is usual with giant earthquakes, um, there was thousands of aftershocks. So you'd hear another one coming, you'd be like, oh, okay. Because uh, that's the interesting thing about quakes is you can hear them kind of, it sounds kind of like a freight train coming. And you're like, oh, that's a, that's an earthquake coming. And then then it hits and you're like, oh, okay, how, how bad is this one going to be? And so, yeah, for, for <laughs> months and I guess actually years afterwards, um, there were still aftershocks coming in. And so people were still having that that crazy stress response that you would you would naturally have after going through quakes. Oh, is this one gonna <laughs> knock over this building and crush me? Oh, oh boy. How do we go from there to you teaching meditation? Oh yeah. Um we had this excellent guy come in to talk to us about stress at the office and he's like, here's my hour long <laughs> lecture on stress, because you guys are very stressed and it's a mandatory meeting you guys have to learn about this stuff it's very important so like okay cool because i've been kind of concerned about this and uh the guy came in and he was like 55 minutes of showing us really cool slides of internal organs that had suffered (laughs) (laughs) catastrophic failure because of chronic stress he's like this is what happens to a liver if you've got high blood pressure like hypertension and uh super high cortisol levels and you overeat because you're freaking out and stressed this liver just freaks out and shuts down. This is a heart that has had this, um, I forget the actual name of it. It's named after like a Japanese eel trap, but the shape of your, <laughs> the shape of your heart changes and then you suddenly die. It's like, it's called broken heart disease, uh, or su cabra, something like that. Anyway, uh, he's like, this is another thing that happens with, um, super high acute or chronic stress conditions. Oh, uh, Kuroshi. Yeah, it might be it. But, uh, yeah, he spent a solid hour basically <laughs> talking about all the ways in which stress is going to kill you. And then at the end, as kind of an afterthought, he's like, oh, yeah, by the way, if you guys are feeling very stressed, uh, you can try counting to 10 or you can try going for a walk around the block. <laughs> Thank you. That'll be all. And then uh, at that point, I was like, well, this is OK. Um, so I guess being really stressed isn't just like some hypochondriac thing where people are like, oh. Um, I've got organ failure because of stress, or I've got my my life is falling apart, or my relationships are doomed, or um, I've got crazy depression, or super anxiety, or panic attacks. Like there's all this stuff that um, was, yeah, on display all around me. Where we were like, oh, okay, uh, serious stress has uh, a whole bunch of terrible <laughs> outcomes for people. Here's all the reasons why you don't want to smoke. Exactly. <laughs> As if you're choosing to be stressed out. Yeah. Like just trying to talk us out of it. Like, hey, you guys, you know, you're making this clear choice to be stressed all the time. You should have you guys considered not being stressed all the time. Oh, I was like, oh, that's a really great point. I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, it's gonna kill me. I should stop doing that. Yeah, and this person probably gets paid a lot of money being a consultant in this way, which makes me wonder about consultancies. Period. Well, I mean, if that's the one case that makes you worry about consultancies. I think you should look a little deeper. Yeah, one of many. They all seem kind of <laughs> like that, you know. Well, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna throw shade at the guy for for doing his job. He did an excellent presentation on freaking me out about the dangers of stress. If the goal was to freak you out, he did an excellent job. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, mission accomplished. I was like, wow, I'm I'm really freaked out about this. I'm now way more stressed about stress than I was before. 
And so, um, yeah, I was like, well, uh, other than counting to 10 and walking around the block, what can one do <laughs> as a practical measure for cutting down on chronic stress? And uh, it turns out if you do a little research, there's a whole bunch of stuff you can do. Like you can get exercise or I think uh, going for a walk in nature, the Japanese nature bathing or whatever. That's that's pretty big now. Um, get better sleep, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the big things people continually pointed to was, oh, have you tried have you tried this meditation slash mindfulness stuff? Um, yeah, it's uh, in fact, the main one that John Kabat-Zinn invented and continues to run is MBSR, so mindfulness-based stress reduction. It's all right there in the name. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, this appears to be effective. Uh, there's a whole bunch of people saying it's effective. And on top of that, there's a whole bunch of actual studies that show, oh, okay, this is run in hospitals and stuff, and it is actually effective. So when all this happened and you were thinking about stress reduction, you didn't immediately think meditation, even though it was in your past, you were first doing research and that's where you ran into it again? Yeah. Um, uh, my past is, uh, my mom's, uh, was a Buddhist nun. So the mindfulness meditation there was, uh, about seeking enlightenment. And so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't an immediate fit to, wow, I'm really stressed. Maybe I should seek enlightenment. It was, I'm really stressed. Maybe I should look for a way to, uh, to avoid that stress. But yeah, it, it seems dumb now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, now, because I think meditation has done such a good job, like you said, advertising 101, I don't think people would need to even go down a rabbit hole about stress reduction. They would immediately think meditation first before even anything else. Maybe some people need therapy, but they would probably think meditation first. It could fix everything. Everyone knows that. Yes, yes. Okay, so you did the research and you found a type of meditation that you liked by John Kabat-Zinn. And then is that the one that you're still practicing? Yeah, basically. So I do like a MBSR equivalent type meditation or mindfulness. Um, I did the, did the eight-week program and then, yeah, it was great. That was more for yourself. Oh, yeah, entirely. Very selfish. It's like, I'm very stressed. I want to stop being very stressed. Let me take care of myself because I'm stressed out. I need something for myself. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, wow, not a very stressed guy. I'm now suddenly a very stressed guy. And uh, I don't, don't want my organs to explode. Maybe I should do something about this. Oh, hey, look, this, this seems to be a good thing. After a while, you're like, wow, this is really, really helpful. I'm really enjoying this. and I really wish I had started this a lot sooner. And you're like, oh, okay. Um, that's normally a pretty good idea for stuff you should tell other people about, typically. Why did you enjoy it so much, though? <laughs> it was kind of this weird helpful analog to all the philosophy I'd been studying. <laughs> uh, I was already all caught up in the craziness of doing a, a PhD. That was end-stage PhD there. And so when you finish up a philosophy degree, you have to do a lot of wrestling with like, what am I going to do with this philosophy PhD? What do I think philosophy is? Et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you don't have to, but it's kind of par for the course. You're already doing a lot of deep thinking about stuff. You tend to be like, maybe I should do some deep thinking about philosophy itself. And a lot of the stuff that was, I guess, absent in philosophy, particularly Western philosophy, was was right there with uh, meditation. And so I was like, oh, this is allowed. It's like the, the left foot that allows you to walk with the right foot and actually get some progress somewhere as opposed to just walking around in circles with just one foot. Where you're like, oh, I'm just going to stay stuck with mindfulness or I'm just going to stay stuck with philosophy. Well, this actually allows for sort of like straight line progression as opposed to spiraling off into nowhere. That's a weird metaphor. What made you even interested in philosophy? Well, I mean, yeah, I had a, a strong background of arguing about things that were largely pointless um, to 
to huge portions of the population. You're like, what do you think karma is? Is it actually dished out by the whole universe? Or is it something people make up to make sure that monks don't starve? So like, all that kind of stuff was in the background. And then uh, philosophy was excellent because, again, it was one of these things that was super, super pointless. There was no philosophy job out there afterwards other than potentially teaching more people more pointless philosophy. And that um, that always really, really appealed to me. I like I really like pointless things because <laughs> I think there's, a, there's like a genuine honesty in pointless stuff. You're like, no one's trying to sell me anything with this. So there must be something something to it other than the obvious usefulness. But did you know from the end of high school that you were going to go into philosophy or was it still an evolution? Because there was things there. There was already context there that would make you like philosophy. But how did you decide, oh, this is the thing that I want to do? Oh, uh, it's just your simple, like, took the, took the right class at the right time story. We were like, oh, I'm going to do, I'm going to do something like computers or whatever, because you can make money with computers. Classic, like, classic high school thinking. And then you get to university and you're like, oh, um, maybe I shouldn't do all computer classes. I'll just try this, this one other kind. Oh, this is actually way more interesting. Um, never mind. Computers are dumb. I'm, I'm going to just sit around and think about stuff and drink coffee. And then, uh, <laughs> That's that's always a large regression there, but yeah, I mean, if you just sit around with a bunch of people who are interested in stuff that you are also very interested in, then you get the best kind of conversations. And um, yeah, that I don't know that that always seemed like a really good way of finding out the good stuff in life. If you're like, people here are talking about really interesting things and have a lot to say that is really interesting and seems in depth, maybe I should stick around here for a while. Yeah, that's like a dowsing rod for finding, but, but one that actually works um, for finding good stuff. I find philosophy by itself is just kind of like, like you said, pointless. But then when it's a complement to other things, then you find the other piece of the puzzle. Like I was talking to a previous guest about psychedelics. So it was the episode with David Parsons, who's a history PhD. And I was talking to him about psychedelics and how I know a lot of people who were all into psychedelics. And there's also very well-known people in media who are all into psychedelics who are just like big assholes because he was making a point <laughs> about how psychedelics really opened up his mind and, you know, made him more empathetic and all this stuff. And then I was like, well, what did you do before you took psychedelics? And he was reading a lot of philosophy at the time, right? So that was the context, and that's why his psychedelic experience is different from those people who just took psychedelics, and they became like a psychedelic asshole. They were an asshole before, <laughs> and then they became a psychedelic asshole, right? Yeah. And actually, a lot of times when I talk to people about martial arts, too, they then kind of characterize it as like, oh, Sam's kind of uh, like this, and he has like very strong ideas about ethics. Maybe all martial artists are like this. And I always tell them, no, no, <laughs> believe it or not, very few martial artists are like that. They're not like really interested in ethics like that. Because for me, philosophy was my complement to martial arts. And then it opened up the whole world of martial arts and like thinking about like, you know, what's the difference between violence on the street and fighting in the dojo, right? It's all about consent. So then it's like this consent-based ethics. It's all about, oh, you have to give permission. Oh, boundaries are a thing. And then from there, you could evolve into, you know, either care ethics or like utilitarian ethics or something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, it all makes sense. If you have the philosophy background, which is what I'm saying, 
So it sounds like you also had the same pattern then where it's like you had the philosophy, <laughs> it's just silliness. But then once it got combined with meditation, you're like, oh, okay, right away. I enjoy this meditation stuff because of the philosophy background you had. Yeah. And I, I agree with you 100%. I think like philosophical thinking is a framework that allows you to take all kinds of other stuff and cram it into that framework. But you can always, you can always tell philosophers when you talk to them about other stuff, you're like, oh, we're talking about, <clears throat> talking about fishing, but this guy, this guy's talking about fishing in a weirdly philosophical way. I wonder if he's read a bunch of Plato. Uh, <laughs> well, it's always inquiry, right? It's always like this. How do you know? Yeah, exactly. What do you mean by those terms? And how do you know what you're saying? Well, you always get the same. Uh, here is my argument. Here are three pieces of evidence that support my argument. And this is why you should believe me. You're like, I've seen this pattern before several times. Actually, I find that also people who have a philosophical background, if nothing else, they make for good nonfiction writers because the way you do philosophy is also the same order that you're supposed to write an essay, right? You're supposed to have like a thesis and then the reasoning and then your arguments and then evidence, 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 and then you rinse and repeat and then you have a conclusion. That's just how most essays go also. So a lot of philosophers have transitioned into writing, I find. Yeah, exactly. Because you can't make money being a philosopher. No, you go back to that, that useless thing again. <laughs> Though nowadays, and especially I think because of fear of technology, being an ethicist is a thing again. Yeah, I was really interested to see that. I was like, hey, look at that. It's, um, it's that same argument about do you switch the train on the tracks to kill 10 people instead of one people? But now it's for actual like self-driving cars. They find a point for that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's a real car this time. Yeah, it's not just some hypothetical car that just makes people bummed out at parties. Yeah. <laughs> so that's called a trolley problem for those of you who want to look that up. But yeah, being an ethicist now, there's five more jobs. It's very sad. It's very sad to see that happen. But, you know, that's better than nothing. <sighs> I don't know. I still lament those five jobs. <laughs> the walk away from pointlessness, I think, is, is damaging philosophy in, in all kinds of incalculable ways. Very soon we'll have, we'll have the marketers there in no time at all. Well, you know. <laughs> oh, man. But the basics of this type of meditation, is it a focus inward at first, like your biology, like your breathing, your heart rate? Uh, yeah, I'm going to. I guess the main thing when you start out is um, you're always like, oh, I'm going to see how many times I can, or how long I can pay attention to my breathing for without getting distracted by thinking. That's that's my main goal. And uh, I guess pretty quickly you realize, oh, actually, that's just a trick to get me <laughs> to recognize what it feels like when you're distracted in the first place, rather than I'm not actually building some all time high score for paying attention to breathing for the longest time. That would be what, what, <laughs> what possible use would that be? You come strutting in and be like, I'm the best in this meditation class because I did a full half hour. No <laughs> distractions. And they're like, oh my God, he's a, he's some sort of king. No, the idea is you want to get very, very familiar with what it feels like to be focused and what it feels like to not be focused. Oh, so focusing on your biology, the material of your body is just a trick. Yeah, exactly. It's an excellent first timey trick because your breathing is always there. It's like this excellent, excellent home gym you can carry around. Just like Chuck Norris always sold, <laughs> it packs away easily. So you're always breathing. And so at any time, you can be like, okay, I can do some, some mindful breathing, right? as opposed to mindful eating or mindful walking or any of the other kind of mindful practices. So it's kind of like Scientology where they trick you, make you think it's one <laughs> thing. And then later on, you find out, oh, it's all about like some alien Xenu. 
That's what I've heard. I mean, I haven't gone clear or anything, so I don't know the, the full truth about about the Xenos, but I have I have seen some stuff on the, the Netflix. Well, I just that's a spoiler. I just ruined it for you for your future journey into Scientology. I just ruined the whole thing. Oh man, it's gonna move to Hollywood, become a Scientologist. But um, yeah, I guess yeah, it's an excellent trick in that way where you're like, okay, I'm really focused on on building this focus, and then it turns out actually what I'm what I'm really doing is learning. Um, learning what it feels like to be focused compared to being distracted. So that I can, if I want to maintain focus, I can then quicker and quicker realize, oh, I'm actually getting caught up in thinking or I'm distracted from what I'm supposed to be paying attention to. So why is focus so important? Why is that such a big deal? Uh, I think anyone who's tried to ever do anything can answer that. Um, like if you, if you sit down to do piano practice and um, you actually do some piano practice for half an hour and really focus on it, that's, oh, wow, I got some progress there. Or if you sit down at the piano and you're just like, I'm here for half an hour. I'm tactically poking at these keys. Noise is coming out of the piano, but I don't, I'm not really paying attention. I don't care. Um, my parents just make me do this piano practice. Um, you're not going to get any better at all. And um, I guess, yeah, for, for learning stuff, focus is great. For, for paying attention to what's going on, focus is great. Um, for knowing when you're daydreaming and maybe you don't want to be daydreaming right now, focus is excellent. I mean, I get that selling point, but why is focus such a big deal for stress relieving or living a more grateful life or being happier? Like I could see it in a productive end. I could get better at learning stuff, but what's so good about it for going back to philosophy, right? Eudaimonia, like for human flourishing to live this life, why is focus so important? Or just going back to stress relief, like how does it help me reduce my anxiety? I guess um, the main thing for for stress relief, I guess, give some example is um, some of the stress in your life is caused by stuff that's happening to you externally, but the vast majority of chronic stress is actually caused by you running over and over and over and over and over and over, terrible stuff happening to you in your head. So like. Oh, that stuff that happened to me before that was terrible. Let me relive that a whole bunch of times or, uh, some imaginary stuff or hypothetical stuff that's going to happen to me in the near future. Let me think about that for a whole bunch of time. But isn't that a type of focus also? <laughs> yeah. It's letting your brain do whatever it wants with, uh, no kind of control. Just being like, Jesus, take the wheel. I hope I get somewhere, <laughs> somewhere I want to go. You're ruminating. Yeah, exactly. You're just letting letting the mind run free and letting the brain just dwell on whatever it wants to dwell on, and hoping that from that um, you get <laughs> you get a nice, happy life full of human flourishing, and you're not just focusing on stuff that freaks you out. Um, I think most people's experience is just letting the brain run free and focus on whatever it wants to focus on. Um, doesn't have the best. <laughs> The best outcomes for people, you tend to focus on stuff that freaks you out or painful things that happened in the past or hypothetical situations that could go horribly wrong in the near future. Uh, and so having any kind of hand in that and being like, maybe I can focus on something other than these ruminating thoughts or these particular chains of thoughts that are entirely negative or freaking me out or causing stress and anxiety. Maybe that would be a good thing. And uh, yeah, that's, that's where mindfulness comes in. If you're focusing on something else, and paying attention to something else, uh, then you you won't you necessarily won't be paying attention to the other thing. That's that's how awareness works. It's like a flashlight. So it's kind of like you're going to be focusing on something anyway. So you have the choice of 
allowing it to be a runaway train and just running all over the place and just like running you ragged, right? Or you could take control of the wheel and try to focus it on maybe just one thing instead of like a bazillion things. And maybe that one thing isn't as freaky or scary. That is what the stress reduction, that's where it comes from. Yeah. I mean, especially with something like, again, back to mindful breathing. If you spent a couple hundred hours just paying attention to your breathing, you become very, very familiar and comfortable with it. You're like, oh, yeah, I know what this is. This is that breathing stuff again. Um, And so even if you're in the middle of a full on, oh, my goodness, I'm freaking out about something. If you shift your attention over to the breathing for a while, yeah, all that freaking out goes away because you're like, oh, I'm not actually actively thinking about that. I'm actually just focused on what the sensation of breathing is. But wouldn't some people, when they're doing that, right, kind of freak out at the beginning? Like, does meditation sometimes freak some people out? You know, there's that whole thing where if you go to the doctor and you're getting your heart rate taken, right, and you look at that heart rate monitor, your heart rate starts going up because you're just looking at it and you're focusing on it and then it actually gets more erratic. I think the main roughness for it, for people who are starting out is um, a lot of weird stuff can come up because you'll be spending a lot of time paying attention to exactly what you're thinking about because um, the thoughts will come up and you'll be like, oh, that's well, that's a weird thought. Okay, I got to come back to my breathing, but okay, that was really weird. Um, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> Do I normally think about stuff like that? Oh, no, that can be really weird. You hear a lot about that when people go to their first silent retreat and then they start crying and screaming and you know, not everybody, but you always hear about one or two people who just run out of there screaming because <laughs> I think it's, it's literally what you just described. They were just sitting there with their thoughts, trying to be, you know, meditating. And then these thoughts arise that they weren't ready for. And then it freaks some people out. Yeah, it does. It's, it's, it's freaky stuff. I think um, the mental image of like every single silent retreat ending with everyone <laughs> screaming and running up and, um, I would run a whole bunch of silent retreats if that was the case. But um, Well, I'm sure if they came back to meditation after that, it would probably be good for them. Yeah. But, I mean, the weird thing about, about mindfulness and meditation is you're not dealing with anything that you're not already dealing with. Like, it doesn't add anything on. It's not like, oh, here's extra difficulty for you in an already difficult part of your life. Or here's a bunch of really freaky stuff that you have to think about because you're meditating. It's like you're already... This, this is already your life. This is already your thoughts. This is already your brain. You're just paying attention to it now. I'm sorry you find that <laughs> terrifying, but that might be something you might want to work with if you think that's all horrible. It's things that are repressed or internalized, right? And you, if you didn't have those things, then you wouldn't be freaking out anyway. Right. And they haven't come in magically from elsewhere. It's not like you're like, well, this meditation thing is really a, a secret connection to the demon realm. And that allows nothing but terrible thoughts to escape from the demon realm and plague you. It's actually, <laughs> it's actually your own thinking. And if you're freaked out about your own thinking, that's, that's really informative. I think that's something you should pay attention to because why? Well, all the people I know who have freaked out at silent retreats, they all know it, it's nothing, some magical thought that came from meditation. It's all stuff they knew was hiding there some kind of trauma from childhood in their past with their parents or something they did to somebody else like i saw a documentary where it was uh they were experimenting with meditation with convicts in a prison and for them it was not just a couple people it was like the majority of them started freaking out but it's like yeah they probably have shit that they had to deal with there were some people who always denied ever having committed some crime that they went to jail for and then after that meditation they're like yeah i did it I finally was forced to like think about what I did 
and it made them feel real bad. But that's like an extreme version of something where they did something bad, but something bad could have happened to them. Or there's just some trauma where nobody did anything bad, but it's like the earthquake and it's just traumatic. Yeah, exactly. But if it's not worked out, so it's like the people who are freaked out, they know what is freaking them out. Most of the time. Yeah. Most of the time. And that's why I think sometimes maybe returning to meditation or going to seek something else is probably good because maybe you need to deal with that. I don't think it's a maybe. I mean, I don't want to tell people how to live their lives. But if you're like, I really can't deal with the thoughts inside my own head, I'm going to run away from that. Like, where exactly do you think you're running to? (laughs) Well, that's a depressive mind, right? That already sounds like a depressive mind. If I can't even deal with the thoughts in my own head. No, no. It's and um Talk about first things first, like <laughs> the whole rest of your day is going to be terrible if <laughs> you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, I, I really can't stand my own thinking and I have, <laughs> I have deep problems with myself. I really hope this day escalates and gets a whole bunch better. Uh, maybe I can distract myself from the fact that I, I really hate all of this, but I think that distraction would be temporary at best. Have you heard about that study where they left people alone with their thoughts in a room for like 10 or 15 minutes and then they had a device in there that could like painfully shock you, like really painfully shock you? And that was the only other device in that room. And a lot of people chose to shock themselves than just sit there with their thoughts. <laughs> no, that sounds um, that sounds like exactly something in a psych department would dream up. Be like, hey, <laughs> let's see what people will do if we leave them alone with their own thoughts. Well, it sounds like they already knew what was going to happen. So they're like, let's do it. (laughs) Oh, man. But that's to the point that you're making, right? Maybe a lot of us do have these kind of uh, things that we haven't been able to deal with. And mindfulness isn't creating those things. They're not making them out of thin air. It's something you already have. And maybe, like you said, meditation then puts a flashlight on it. Yeah, exactly. You have to pay attention to this stuff because... It's right there and it's distracting you and you can't really ignore it at that point. So yeah, um, it's, <laughs> it's an excellent tool for, for building focus. But a side effect of that is you normally have to confront a lot of the stuff about the operations of your own mind that you might not find all that great. You can use it as a short-term fix, but it's really meant to be a long-term thing because there's going to be ups and downs along with it. Yeah, I think, well... It's it's a great way to sell things if you're like, here's a short-term way to fix your brain. Uh, just do a, a couple months of this and you'll confront some of your inner demons and then uh, you can make peace of that and then you'll be a better person and you can go back to doing you know whatever it is you'd like to do. Yeah, you're done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Once you've done a little bit of mindfulness, there you go. It's all good. But no, I think the, the main thing for meditation is it's, um, and obviously by extension mindfulness, is it's a... Uh, it's a basic curiosity. Like you're like, I'm doing this mainly because I want to know more about what's going on here in a place I haven't ever really paid attention to before. And so uh, that if you have a curiosity like that, then it's difficult to be like, Oh, I'm done with that. I I answered that question. Um, What's going on right now is a question that you you can't really get to the bottom of because obviously right now is different than yesterday's right now or five minutes ago. right now. So that was your personal journey into meditation and then did you know right away you wanted to start teaching it or was it more like you just wanted to like tell people hey you should try this meditation thing yeah i turned into one of those annoying mindfulness evangelist guys and that stemmed out of because you saw people suffering after the earthquakes right yeah i was like oh my god you guys (laughs) 
I know I love Scotch whiskey, but have you tried this mindfulness stuff? It's pretty good. Um, and I wouldn't shut up about it. Wait, is it better than Scotch whiskey? Uh, better is a funny word. <laughs> you know, apples and oranges. Yeah, it's up there. Is a screwdriver better than a hammer? They're both tools. They're both very good. They're competitive with each other. Right, exactly. So at first you were just telling people about it, and then what happened? Uh, yeah, then eventually people were like, oh, um, where, do, where do I learn this stuff from? And I was like, That's, uh, I guess you can go online and you can type in how to, how to mindfulness, which is, is... YouTube. Yeah, it's excellent. There's probably about a couple hundred billion videos on there of being like, this is how you meditate from a, a whatever tradition you want. It's all there. And this was before all the apps came out, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which are actually pretty awesome. I like those ones. Oh, so some of those apps are actually pretty good? I guess, I mean, in that it's kind of the same, it's a problem creating a solution for the problem. I think it's pretty cool. You're like, oh, I have this phone with me all the time and I'm constantly <laughs> checking this phone. Uh huh. If only I could become mindful of, oh, hey, this phone will also tell me to be, <laughs> to be mindful. Um, so maybe I can um, keep using the phone, keep using this phone and be distracted, but also be mindful about. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a, overall, I'm high five about anything that gets people doing more introspection and mindfulness. So yeah, the apps are, are pretty rad for that. If you've got five minutes in your day between jumping off the bus and jumping on the bus and you want to squeeze in a, a quick bit of mindful app or whatever, or before you go to bed or who knows what, um, all the ways in which smartphones can wiggle into our daily lives in the little <laughs> cracks and crevices between meetings and so on. You were going to use it anyway. Yeah, exactly. You're already going to be, I don't know, scrolling whatever the new thing is, um, or answering emails, you might as well be doing a little mindfulness, um, some guided meditation. That's, that's way better. But like as a, as a substitute for a daily practice, mm, uh, not so much, but yeah, they're, I mean, excellent. Again, it's like Scotch whiskey, excellent tool in its right context. So this was before the apps, you were telling people about it and then what happened? Oh yeah. Uh, so I was telling people about it and basically a bunch of my friends were like, well, um, why don't, why don't you look into telling people about this in a, a more functional way? Like, why don't you go actually teach people about it? And I was like, oh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'll look into that. And so it turns out it's, um, it's pretty easy to become a mindfulness teacher. You just have to have a couple of years under your belt of meditation and practice and uh, a desire to go and teach people about it. And um, you can go off to a, a ni nice long class over a couple of weeks and they'll take you through the whole thing. Um, and I guess the main reason there uh, is suppose you have folks come up who are heavily depressed or have another mental health issue that's, that's really serious. What, what does one do in that situation? Whereas if you just kind of jumped into it and said, all right, I'm a mindfulness teacher. Now I'm going to go teach mindfulness. Um, that <laughs> probably wouldn't be as responsible. So, yeah, going through, jumping through all the, the hoops and the, the minor amounts of registration and, and legislation, so on that are involved was, I thought, the better way to go. And then, yeah, um, after that, it was just, yeah, just kind of word of mouth teaching where people were like, I hear you teach mindfulness. And I was like, I do. Might I learn? Certainly. And then teaching classes and such. So now that you are on the teaching end of it, because you were at first just doing it for yourself for the first couple of years. Do you have more insight into maybe not even meditation, but just like 
how people are, what they're dealing with, because you were more aware of what you were dealing with, right? And mindfulness meditation resonated with you right away. Maybe you didn't have all the bugaboos like conjured up when you were meditating. So that was your experience. But now you're seeing all these other people navigating meditation for the first time. So what have you learned as a teacher? Oh, man. Well, uh, it's one of those things. Like if you want to think, if you think you understand something, the best way to test that is to tell someone else about it, like to instruct them in it, because <laughs> very quickly, people will ask you the one question you have no idea about. And you're like, oh, that's a huge hole in my, my knowledge on this subject. Um, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> but yeah, as you say, like, your own experience with something is interesting, but being there uh, and learning from other people's experience with exactly the same thing is like it, it, it deepens your knowledge of the subject hugely. Because like, well, not now, not only do I have my own view on this, but I've seen how, what is a, a person with panic attacks? <laughs> how do they experience mindfulness and what, what huge roadblocks do they run into? And, um, cause sounds like you didn't have that many obstacles, but then now you're, as a teacher, you're going to run into a whole bunch of students and some of them might not have any obstacles and some of them will. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I won't say like I had this flawless <laughs> experience where I was like, I just breeze through that glass. No problem. <laughs> There's natural meditators. I got myself among them. Just, you know, everything's easy for me. You were born to meditate. Yeah, I was already doing it most of the time anyway. So, I was, you know, whatever. Basically, basically, right? Yeah. No, that's all ridiculous. I don't think, I don't think anyone's ever um, honestly been able to say that. Like, it's, it's tricky for everyone in, in all kinds of different ways. And so, yeah, finding out how it's tricky for other people is, is really interesting. But also, yeah, getting to see, thing, getting to see the subject from a different perspective uh, gives you a much better understanding of the subject. And so, yeah, teaching mindfulness, yeah, it gives me, it's, <laughs> I learned a lot more about teaching, about mindfulness by teaching mindfulness than I ever did about studying and practicing mindfulness myself. Did it also teach you a lot about just the human condition? Yeah, largely, because the stuff that people come to ask you about uh, after class is all, uh, yeah, I would think fits nicely into that human condition thing. Like, um, this kind of thought keeps coming up, or uh, this thought about dead people, or death keeps coming up. What What's that about? And you're like, hmm, <laughs> that's a really good question. People are dealing with a lot of shit, man. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I've... I find it really difficult to practice mindfulness because I'm constantly freaked out that uh, I'm not going to have enough money to pay rent and I'm going to be kicked out and have to live on the street. And you're like, hmm, that, that is a dilly of a pickle. And it seems to be quite different from the um, all of your stress or the majority of your stress is internally created and has very little to do with an external situation. Um, this seems to be quite a lot to do with an external situation, which is <laughs> you might have to live on the street soon. So yeah, that kind of that kind of thing. Like, wow, okay. So mindfulness can't help you with everything. No, you don't just magically create money. <laughs> no, that would be sweet, but uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, it has to still has to fit into the world of capitalism. Well, that's the problem. Not really with mindfulness, but it's sometimes pigeonholed into that world of self help, where they individualize structural problems sometimes. So they make you think that even structural problems like running out of money and being on the street can be solved by yourself by thinking things better, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it's your fault for being lazy in this world of opportunities. <laughs> this equal world of opportunities for all. 
which is kind of like morally reprehensible to teach things in that way. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, like, uh, <laughs> you see it a lot in corporate land as here's a way which we can make people more resilient to stress so that uh, the shitty situations that they're in currently can be um, extended out much, much longer without them completely having a mental breakdown. Look at this useful mindfulness as a tool <laughs> to make sure people in corporate America can, or corporate land USA worldwide can maintain productivity for way longer. I, I think that, yeah, that is uh, reprehensible. So do you find with a lot of people's obstacles into meditation to be idiosyncratic, like it's very unique to each person? No, they'd say the same thing. Uh, I can't practice mindfulness because I can't control my thoughts. It doesn't work for me. That, uh, various flavors of that, <laughs> that sentence is the entirety of uh, people's objection to mindfulness. So then what's idiosyncratic isn't their problem with it. It's more of like, okay, with each person, how do I overcome that? <laughs> The, the weird solution to that is um, no one has any control over any of their thinking. You're not alone in that. Like, and as soon as you start paying attention to thinking, you're like, oh, these thoughts are coming out of somewhere, um, which is <laughs> I'm not actively creating them. I'm not being like, I'm going to just think about what thoughts I will form before I form them. They're just being created somewhere in, the, in probably the brain and um, magically appearing in consciousness. And that's your experience. And so if you think that, oh, everyone else who does mindfulness magically has control over their thoughts, <laughs> I'm the only one who can't. You're like, well, no, every, no one has control over their thoughts. Everyone has no control. Um, you're in, yeah, not unique in that at all. And so um, the, I guess the idea that you magically gain control over your thinking is... Um, unfortunately part of the sales pitch i guess what you just said how you communicate that to each person even though you're saying the same thing over and over you got to say it in different ways for each person yeah well it's it's mainly just tailored to exactly how they phrase that particular objection like they're like oh um i have have problems with thoughts you know like okay let's unpack that a little I'm like oh it turns out um, when I try and meditate all these thoughts appear and distract me from my meditation you know like okay let's unpack that a little more um, what do you, what do you mean by that? And I'm like, well, I, you know, I, I just can't sit there for half an hour and just, just focus on my breathing because all these thoughts come up and, and I find it really difficult. You know, like, yeah, of course <laughs> that's, that's the whole point of it. You've, <laughs> you've hit the crux, my friend. Um, you, you, yeah, it's, it's a very tricky thing. Um, and I guess, um, maybe because it's so simply explained, you're like, your instructions are able to be printed out on a little tiny business card, like just pay attention to your breathing. When you get distracted, pay attention to your breathing again. Uh, people are like, oh, because the instructions are simple, then the practice itself is very simple and easy. You're like, no, no, no. The instructions are simple, but the practice itself is very, very tricky. Don't, don't conflate the two. So there's a difference between something being easy to say and easy to do. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, I don't know, a kid can learn the rules of chess, but that doesn't mean a kid can beat a chess grandmaster. There's, <laughs> there are levels. Uh, and so simplicity of rules or instruction doesn't have anything really to do with <laughs> how easy the actual thing is. That applies to everything. Exactly. But I guess people, because thinking is so 
close to who we think we are. Like it's like the the thing that we most closely associate with our sense of self is like, oh, I thought that. That's my thinking. Those are my ideas. Unless you're one of those folks who has other thoughts appearing in your head that you don't associate with. But uh, um, we'll, we'll keep it on the on the regular human one where we're all like, these thoughts are my thoughts. I think these thoughts, these are me. Then when you have to confront the fact that, oh, um, I don't voluntarily create these thoughts for the vast majority of them. Hmm, that's, hmm, what, what, <laughs> hmm, what the heck? Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's just something that's so fundamental and so foundational, but uh, un until you actually start paying attention to it, it's nothing we actually, we never come to realize that. And so I think a lot of people can be kind of embarrassed about it, whether like, this should be way easier. I should have control over my own thinking. Obviously, I've been thinking for several decades now. I don't want to learn brand new things about this that, that make me uncomfortable. So your path to meditation, like you said, wasn't super easy either. You had your own, you know, like obstacles to overcome in learning how to meditate for yourself. Now, in teaching, did you find that you were a natural at this or was there also a learning curve? Uh, oh, yeah, there's definitely a learning curve. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's the best thing about practicing on friends and family first is... Um, <laughs> You can get some honest or semi-honest feedback about like what's a very difficult thing um, topic-wise, and so you put probably spend a little more time explaining that as opposed to just rushing through it. Or um, you should spend more time on the actual practice of things during the class as opposed to just sort of vaguely describing them, giving them a five-minute session, and then pushing them out the door. That kind of stuff. So it wasn't like teaching was super easy, obviously. Uh, there's a whole bunch of <laughs> hurdles and difficulties to overcome. But it's one of those things, I guess, where the feedback is really natural. You're like, okay, I should do this. Uh, this is a place I'm falling down. I should do something to change that. And then you change that. And you're like, oh, okay, that's that's fixed that problem. That is good. That doesn't mean there's no problems going forward. But uh, yeah, as long as you're paying attention and incorporating, <laughs> incorporating feedback into your techniques, then yeah, I think it's... It's a straightforward process, not an easy one. Because you said a lot of the people who struggle with meditation, they often have the same struggle. Yeah. For meditation teachers, is it often the same? I'm sure there's daily hurdles, but was there like a big one that you have to overcome to be a good and effective meditation teacher? Probably the, uh, having a chat with a bunch of other teachers. I think a lot of the things people struggle with uh, for being a mindfulness teacher, when they start out with is... Um, probably that old imposter syndrome where people are like how how dare i <laughs> who have only done a couple years on what's clearly like a lifetime path how could i sit down in front of people and be like this is how you do it i'm teaching you i'm uh, i'm good enough to teach you about stuff i know all the answers and so uh yeah people really struggle with that that's especially when you start out and you're like oh my god people are gonna ask me a question and i'm gonna be like I don't know. Oh my God. And then I'm going to run out of the class screaming and, and then, and then, and then, and then. But um, I guess the nice thing about being a mindfulness teacher is a lot of those um, self-inflicted troubles are easily countered by doing some mindfulness. So <laughs> it's, um, yeah, one of the nice things where you're like, oh, the solution is also right there next to the problem. I wonder if a lot of that imposter syndrome comes from the same thing 
what our misconceptions about meditation period, which is like from movies and pop culture. You know, you were saying like meditation, we think of this magical thing with like monks and whatever, right? And you get over that and you learn meditation. But then once you become a meditation teacher, all that comes back and you're like, wait, no, I don't, I'm an imposter. I'm not this like aesthetic monk who's been chanting for like 5,000 years or whatever. I'm not qualified to teach this. Exactly. I haven't been in a monastery. I don't have a shaved head. I wonder how much of that imposter syndrome comes from the movies. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's always expectations, right? Like I should be way better at meditation than I am to teach meditation. I should have, I should have started when I was five, like a kind of like a Shaolin temple or something like that. So I'd be, I'd, I'd fit the part. Um, I think actually, ironically enough, I think if you, you avoid any of the actual trappings or trappings, I'm never sure on the pronunciation of that word, uh, of being a mindfulness teacher. So you don't dress in flowy cotton robes or, wear awesome prayer beads or have a bunch of candles or crystals or whatever. Like if you avoid the stuff that you think a meditation teacher should look like and sound like, and yet don't affect a quiet, calm voice, that kind of stuff. Um, I think all that, all that stuff, you really know you're just playing dress up. And so I think that rather than making you feel more like a genuine teacher, all that stuff would really... <laughs> do an awful lot to undermine you because you know a lot of these people are probably trusting me because of my prayer beads and flowing robe oh my god if they only knew the terrible the terrible truth inside so yeah i think yeah a lot of stuff where it's like fake it till you make it is actually really terrible advice overall because the one who knows they're faking it is in fact you and so even if you do eventually make it you'll be like this is all because i faked it (laughs) When you fake it till you make it, that's also called being fraudulent, right? <laughs> yeah, that's called being a charlatan, yeah. Yeah, and depending on what municipality you're in, it might actually be fraud under the eyes of the law. So, Yeah, wasn't there that, that whole thing for the great imposter and um, the other dude who did the catch me if you can and so on? Like all these great imposters who are like, it turns out if you dress up as a surgeon and go into a hospital, <laughs> you can actually start cutting people up. <laughs> Well, you hear that a lot with like these startup founders or like these like so-called business people who are trying to start something big and and they're faking it till they make it. Yeah, they do realize it's against the law, but it's such a common cliche advice that it's acceptable to break that law. (laughs) It's like it's acceptable to be a fraud because of that whole self-help fake it till you make it bullshit. Like I can, I can understand wanting to play dress up and be like, I'm a fancy businessman because look at my fancy businessman suit. But yeah, I think it, it <laughs> you run into real trouble. Yeah, saying you have money you don't have, saying you have a business you don't have, or saying you're a doctor when you're not a doctor, or saying you're a monk and you made that whole thing up, it's uh, not good. Yeah, it's like, it's like they always wonder about video games where they're like, people will never be able to determine what's real and what's fake. And eventually, this murder simulator will have a bunch of people out shooting people because they uh, shot Nazis in Wolfenstein. And then it turns out that the actual advice that they were giving to people was pretend that you're something yeah. <laughs> for a long time until you can no longer tell the difference between reality and you being a pretend person. You're like, oh, it's, that's interesting. <laughs> interesting that that's, that's how everything turned out. But yeah, I think, I think that kind of charlatanism where you just pretend to be someone uh, and then use that, that outside exterior to trick people i think is um i said yeah it's it's terrible yeah hopefully people get found out 
That's what I'm saying. <laughs> but um, as a, a long wander off topic. But yeah, going back to difficulties with teaching, I think people do struggle with that sometimes. Do you find that all good meditators make good teachers or, or no? Man, I guess there's a whole bunch of folks who would be really great teachers, but um, don't have a real desire to do so. So like they're, they have clearly they've got the skills. Um, they've done a lot of meditation in this case. Uh, they have a really solid foundation uh, for daily practice. They understand the theory behind the techniques. So yeah, they will be excellent teachers, but I'm not sure if sitting down in front of a class and being like, all right, I'm going to instruct you on this uh, or working one-on-one with someone is exactly the same thing. So I don't know. I mean, obviously they have the skills, but whether or not that translates over to being a great teacher automatically, I don't know. I don't think so. Some things, right? You could be great at the thing, but not great at teaching it. Like let's say martial arts, you could be a great fighter, but you might not be great at teaching it because it's two different skills. But as far as teaching in all the different subjects, whether it's martial arts, something physical, like you're coaching a sport or you're teaching a history class, a lot of the things that make you a good teacher in all these different realms are the same thing. You have to be a good listener. You have to pay attention and you have to be a good communicator and you have to learn to like empathize and, and also kind of read people. Yeah. Which sounds like then you could be bad at teaching and still good at the activity in almost all things. But in meditation, it sounds like the things that meditation is supposed to make you good at should then make you a good teacher. And if you're a bad teacher, then maybe, I mean, I would assume if I went to a meditation class and I felt like the teacher wasn't good, I would also have to question their own meditation practice because like, what are the things that I, that would make me think they're not good? Oh, they don't listen. They don't pay attention. (laughs) They're not focusing on me. They're putting themselves before me, like all these things. Then, then how are they good at meditation? Yeah, I guess. And it's even harder, I guess, with meditation. Because if I went to, I don't know, learn chess from some guy who only spoke Russian, um, we could actually, we could, we could figure that out because there's a chess board right there. And he can be all like, move the pieces around. And I'd be like, oh, okay, that's how those pieces are supposed to move. Or in martial arts, you can go to a place where there's a complete language barrier. But if you watch the guys doing the thing, you're like, oh, okay. That's how you, that's how they're doing that throw. I can, I can probably, I can probably do that. Uh, but with meditation, there's, <laughs> it's all going on inside the head. So there's no external thing to look at. You can be like, oh, I see. That's what he's doing there. Um, hmm. I can, I can probably mimic that. But with, yeah, with meditation and mindfulness, it's, it's all, it's all inside the noodle. So, um, yeah, leading by example is, is very, very tricky. Seems like the only limitation that, you could be forgiven on is communication, right? They could be still a good listener. They're focusing, they're paying attention to you, but the communication part, like you said, because there's nothing to actually watch, that could be forgivable. You're like, okay, you could probably still be a good meditator yourself. You're just not able to communicate it. Right. But all the other problems of being a bad teacher, that probably can't be explained. No, you'd have to work on that. (laughs) Yeah. Because yeah, if you just sat there and watched the teacher, you'd be like, is he asleep? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or, or is he just sitting there, but he's really deep in meditation? Oh, no. So do you find that teaching meditation is easier when you work with people one-on-one? Because I would, I would think that teaching it in a class setting would be pretty challenging. Uh, the challenges are different. One of the main things, I guess, is because, as we talked about way earlier, a lot of the stuff you confront right away with uh, learning mindfulness is all these weird thoughts you have. And so 
it can be uncomfortable for you to even admit you have these thoughts, let alone sit down in front of a class full of people and be like, so I'm having these weird, crazy thoughts. Um, these are them specifically. Let me say them out loud in public, which is probably 90% of people's worst nightmare to expose themselves fully in the working of their own mind in front of complete strangers. So that, that whole part of it can be really, really tricky. Um, on a one-on-one situation, it's way easier to be like, all right, so what's actually going on? And then that building of trust is there and you can actually have a chat with people um, way more readily. It's a safer space. Yeah, exactly. Because no one, there's not the whole rest of the class is going to point and laugh and be like, oh my God, what a freak. (laughs) And also there's probably extra anxiety now because we are in the world of technology. So you constantly see people being recorded and not realizing they're being recorded. No, that's always good. This isn't being recorded, is it? (laughs) (laughs) I've been recording these classes just so I can use them later. uh, All your guys' personal foibles and stuff are going to be put up on the internet for a bunch of strangers. Not just the strangers in this room, but strangers worldwide to see. Yeah, I can see that being uh, also terrible. The only reason I bring that up is because that's a new anxiety that maybe meditation teachers who got most of their experience 20 years ago or even 15 years ago may not have thought of. Yeah, there was no, uh, what if I post up my pictures of myself meditating on the beach on Instagram and, and I don't get any likes? <laughs> what if no one likes my meditation? Yeah, there was meditation pre-Instagram and post-Instagram. Well, look how much like Instagram has changed yoga. It's completely changed it. Has it though? Wasn't it always white ladies in like <laughs> Lycra? Yeah, but I, we didn't have to see them. But now we see them. <laughs> So it doesn't change yoga. It's just made it visible. And that itself is a change. That's true. Yeah, I guess I guess social media does change most things. And um, but with I mean, with meditation, I, because there's no picture of it, like here's you sitting on the beach asleep. Here's you sitting on the beach meditating. Spot the difference. Like <laughs> it's uh, it's way less photogenic, I guess, than than a lot of the cool stuff like parkour or um yoga or and any of the cool stuff these days i don't know i don't know what's cool there's a shitload of meditation on instagram like just go down the hashtag rabbit hole it's not that photogenic but it's more like i think they're trying to like signal something about themselves right it's not that the picture looks cool like parkour it's more like every once in a while i'll insert a picture of myself meditating and because of that you will think something else about me you see all these selfies of me, but then I insert the selfie of me meditating. And now you're like, oh, so-and-so I thought was shallow, but not anymore because they have a picture of themselves doing meditation. All right. Looking mildly serene and like a little smile on the face there. Yeah. So it's the go-to picture. So there's a shitload of meditation pictures online. Wow. What a strange thing. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a picture of me with my eyes closed. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a picture of theory of mind. Here's a picture of consciousness. It's not something that you could take a picture of, but doesn't stop people from trying. I wonder if there's a big philosophy thing on Instagram. Now you got me curious. Well, I'm trying to start one with my son. I have a whole baby philosopher thing. but People never read my philosophical passages. Like I, I write these like little philosophical captions or I'll use like philosophical quotes from a text. <laughs> Nobody fucking reads that shit. They just comment off of the picture of my kid because I was trying to use cute pictures of my kid to trick people into philosophy. But it's <laughs> but the eggs on my face is not working. They just see it. so I, now I just kind of gave up on that. People can't read, man. Don't you know? Not on the internet. Yeah. 
So we'll see. You know, like babies are kind of cute, but, you know, then they become like a cute kid. And a cute kid, in my opinion, can't compete with a cute toddler. So then they got to they came for the cute baby pics, but they'll have to stick around for the philosophy. So I'm thinking I'll bring that back later on. Get them hooked. And they're like, here's here's my son at not quite so cute level. But here's some philosophy associated with it. Yeah, because, you know, like I, I follow somebody because I thought they were cool for one thing and then I'm getting sick of that one thing. And then they start posting pictures of like food and they're like, oh, I, I came for this, but now I'm sticking around for the food pics. Hmm. <laughs> I always wonder what the point of the food pics was. Is to get you to stick around because, you know, maybe originally it was something else, you know, maybe they were a very attractive person and you stayed for that. And then you're like, they're getting older. Uh, maybe I'm going to unsubscribe. Wait a minute. Look at this delicious hamburger. Okay, I'm staying. <laughs> Uh, that's good stuff. So going back to teaching, then classes have different challenges than teaching one-on-one, but you want to say one is more difficult than the other? Uh, boy, I'd say that one-on-one is actually more difficult, but um, teaching classes is, uh, is easier. Yeah, because now that I think about it, if you are doing one-on-one and it is a safe space, right? You're a meditation teacher, but you're not, you're not a clinician. You're not a therapist. I could see people revealing things to you where you're just like, oh, man, that's terrible. Yeah, exactly. That's beyond my scope. You don't want to be like, oh, my God. Uh, oh, you're a terrible freak. But um, no, and there's no there's no mindfulness teacher, patient confidentiality clause or whatever. So I get to go talk about all kinds of stuff. I'm kidding, of course. But um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah exactly. Um, you don't want to be moving into like the role of a therapist or a counselor. That you're like, I'm, I'm here to talk to you about, about mindfulness. Um, obviously, a bunch of that stuff emotional stuff psychological stuff that's all clearly adjacent but um just keep a small wall there so we don't go full on to like i've been thinking about my parents again you're like okay that's good but the main point is to build focus rather than dwell on uh these stories we're telling ourselves and so on but yeah so yeah as you said and difficulty wise i don't even mean difficulty as you as a teacher but i mean difficulty also as a human being because for your own mental health and your own like happiness if you hear stuff that's like really bums you out all day from like <laughs> when you're de- you know what i mean like the difficulty is also like okay how do i teach people mindfulness one on one without like completely hating the world yeah i mean i'm not teaching all day every day so yeah, I can thankfully step back from that and be like, ooh, well, that was a heavy session. If you had that kind of um, discussion with people every single class, <laughs> every single day for eight hours a day or six hours a day, yeah, it would be, it would be, it would be heavy. That's for sure. The reason why I bring it up is because having taught martial arts so long and work with people one-on-one also is a lot of teachers never think about their own psyche. And you don't think about it until it's too late. You have to actually get past like the first decade where you're like, oh shit, if I want to do this indefinitely, like 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, whatever, I can't be in shambles. I got to make sure I'm there emotionally, mentally to keep doing this job. Then I should start already setting up some boundaries and some protocols so I could keep doing this job or doing this work indefinitely. Yeah. I mean, obviously you got to take care of yourself. But you don't think about that when you're first teaching, right? It's like something like you probably either learn the hard way or people burn out. Yeah. Obviously, when you first start out, you're so keen to be like, oh, I got to do this. I got to be the perfect guy. <laughs> Every single mistake I make, I got to minimize. And you also want to give everything of yourself to that person. Yeah, exactly. You want to be like, oh, I'm going gonna, 
I'm charging this person some dollars and I'm so-called instructing this person. I have to make sure that I focus all my efforts on that. Yeah, it's true. There's very little, I guess, long-term thinking when you start, when you first start out. It's like a good problem. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. I didn't realize that I was going to be doing this for 20 years and I've sustained myself. Now <laughs> I should start thinking about myself. Help. My long-term practice of teaching people has had unforeseen consequences. So going back to your philosophy background and talking about communication, right? A lot of the hurdles of teaching versus practicing is because you can't watch it. You can't really model it for people. You have to explain it. Have you found that your background in philosophy sometimes like doesn't help you as a communicator? Because you were talking about how like sometimes you can spot somebody who has a philosophy background by how they talk. Do you fi sometimes find like you're explaining something and you're getting kind of philosophical and they're looking at you like, what? Like it's just gibberish. Yes. Yeah, that's, I think, uh, I didn't, I didn't bonk my head too hard into the imposter stuff, but yeah, that's, you hit the nail on the head right there. Like that was one of my main challenges was people were like, I got to stop you right there, my friend. You're, <laughs> you're talking about crazy, crazy things. And I'm like, you're right. I'm, I keep, I keep going way too philosophical on these points. Like you guys, you guys don't really care about the like philosophy of mind portion of this. You really want to just know like, what am I doing wrong with this mindfulness technique? Let me, uh, let me bring it back. Okay. Maybe you could help me with this. So when I first started martial arts, I was six, right? And then I started teaching that much later than that. But when I'm first teaching, I haven't read any philosophy. And then it was like, as an adult, I started reading more philosophy. And then at this point, I've read a lot, right? And in a weird way, I sometimes think about it as like, man, this idea or this technique was so much easier to teach like 10 years ago in some ways. Like, <laughs> but it's like, I don't know how to unknow what I know now. After reading so much philosophy, I'm like, how do I just talk like a normal person? How do I just explain this thing? They just want a quick, simple answer. I can't answer them in a quick, simple way. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's real tricky. You're like, okay, I have, to, I have to just dial it back and just start at first principles again and be like, okay, these people are here to learn about meditation. They're not here to learn about philosophy of mind. Piece of cake. I'll just chop all that stuff up. <laughs> you know what I think it is, is like you're trying to answer their question super precisely and accurately. And sometimes the, the better answer is not a precise answer, but it just kind of gets them there. Yeah, or it turns out <clears throat> you're misinterpreting the question because you're like, oh, I see what they really are asking. <laughs> <laughs> How subtle and perceptive of them to, to see the metaphor here. Okay, hold on a second. Let's go on to this deep dive on this philosophical journey. And they're like, no, 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 <laughs> you, mis you misunderstand. I really just wanted to know about, about breathing. <laughs> Yeah. They ask a simple like five word question, right? And you're like, oh my God, all this time I had no idea you were so deep and wanting to know all about this stuff about philosophy. Okay, let's where do I start? And then you get into a, a 30 minute explanation. They're like, no, no. I was just asking a very simple question. I, I literally only use five words to ask you. Yeah, exactly. Like they're like, what does it mean if you're not in control of your own thinking? And you're like, oh, and now it's time for a long explanation on them, like the idea of the self. You're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> what do you think it means? There you go. <laughs> Nailed it. And where does thinking exist? Is it in the material body? Is it outside the body? Wait, do we have free will? Is it Exactly. <laughs> Is it a long, continuous process or are they discrete units? What? <laughs> oh, my God, stop. It's just a mindfulness class. Yeah. Even outside of mindfulness, it could be something like really meathead, right? Like when you compete in the art that I train the most, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, there's weight classes, right? 
So people know I have a background in nutrition and physical training also. So sometimes they'll ask me just a simple question about losing some weight so they could get to like a weight class five pounds below, right? <laughs> yeah. But maybe they'll ask me, you know what? Sometimes it's the way they ask because they ask me in a way that triggers me, not triggers me to make me angry, but triggers the philosophy because they'll ask about, I feel like I have no control over what I eat. <laughs> but then, <laughs> but then they blame themselves as if they have control. So I'm like, ah, I see. You're asking the age-old question, right? Like when you're eating something, you have free will. But when you eat something bad, you have no free will, right? Like you couldn't help yourself. But then you're blaming yourself as if you could have helped yourself. Exactly. So so it's like the the free will question. And they're like, no, just how do I lose five pounds to get to the next division? They're like, oh, I misunderstood. You're really asking is, is willpower trainable like a muscle? I understand. Yes. So there's a lot of debate on it. No, no, no. <laughs> Do I cut carbs or what? How do you shred? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They really just wanted to know what they should eat. And I, maybe I would have gotten there like 40 minutes later. You know what it is? Except I was trying to answer what they literally asked me. <laughs> but, but, I, but instead, I should have answered what they meant. Yes, that's right. You've misinterpreted. <laughs> it's, it's, it's my fault. You've taken a philosophical bent on a straightforward question about what do I eat to not be as heavy as I am now? It was a carb question. <laughs> exactly. Your problem is bread, my friend. Chop out the pizza and beer, you'll be set. Yeah, so sometimes they'll ask me. I'll make no sense to them. It'll be nonsense. And then they'll ask somebody else, like right next to me. <laughs> they'll ask like, Carl, hey, Carl, I don't know what the hell Sam's talking about. You heard the question. What should I do? He's like, oh, man, just like cut out bread for like a week and you'll be good to go. And they're like, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> Damn, this dojo. So philosophical. <laughs> I can't get a straight answer to this guy. I know. And that's the weird thing about philosophy, like Western philosophy and uh, actually not even Western philosophy, just outside of meditation and mindfulness, right? Even if you go deep into Eastern philosophy, it's just like hard to give people a straight answer. Eastern philosophy, man, especially. They're like, oh, I think there's a lot of interpretation intentionally put into this stuff. So... Like if it's coming from the source and they're like, I could mean several things. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think our, our main problem is the, that desire for a philosophical discussion. We're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> I've been so lonely. I've been wanting to have a deep conversation. And oh, thank you for asking me this deep question. I've been, I've been waiting for this. I mean, I appreciate that you've wrapped it up in this question about weight loss. But thank you so much for engaging me philosophically. Let's, let's go. You know what that probably means? It just means like we miss college or something. Man. There is something to that. The conversations you got in Philosophy Lounge at like two o'clock in the afternoon, you're just sitting around on the couches and be like, do colors really exist? <laughs> you, you can't get conversations like that elsewhere. Those are just like, those are baked into to university days. Well, if you've never taken any philosophy class, right? And you say something like, are numbers real? They'll have no idea what the hell you're talking about. But in the philosophy lounge, you're like, whoa, are numbers real? Do numbers exist? Is math independent of humankind? Would math still be around without people to think it? And they're like, all right, let's, let's, let's break this down. What do you mean by math? Yeah, is it a thing in itself or is it just representations? Uh, yeah, I miss those old philosophy conversations. Okay. So since that time that you started meditation and after the Christchurch earthquakes, right? How long did it take before you felt like New Zealand itself, like New Zealanders 
calm down and they were like, okay, we're kind of over the earthquakes now. Oh man, in Christchurch, it took <clears throat> ages, uh, several years. I think the rest of New Zealand was all like, I mean, I don't want to make them sound callous or anything, but they're like, you guys shut up already about those earthquakes <laughs> pretty quickly. Because we're all like, oh my God, more earthquakes, um, more of these little like aftershocks. Uh, we need all this money to rebuild this place. Help, help, help. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was last year, guys. <laughs> like, it's 2011 already. Come on, move on. But, um, yeah, I think Christchurch is still really struggling. Uh, Canterbury is still really struggling with a lot of that. Like, the babies that were born to mothers who had had, like, I don't know, nine months of super chronic stress have all kinds of weird associated chronic stress issues and so on. I don't know. It's very, very strange stuff. So I think to answer your question, uh, yeah, the aftershocks are still going on there. It's pretty crazy. So people are freaked out, they're recovering, and then another bad thing happened recently. Oh, you mean the, the shooting? Yeah. And wasn't that also in Christchurch? That was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just to make everything extra good, uh, they decided to double down on, on disasters and bring in a human one as well. So what happened to people's psyche after that? Um, it, it's definitely not good. I think the previous like mass shootings in New Zealand hadn't been all that mass, and they had been a long time ago. Like the last one was, I want to say, Air Moana was like a loner dude went around shooting people in a little tiny town with a rifle, and then the cops showed up and shot him. But um, yeah, he didn't shoot like fifty people or whatever, and he wasn't live streaming it. It's always a loner dude. Yeah, it's always a loner white dude. <clears throat> oh, oops. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, because you've lived through the earthquake and, and that was devastating for people back then, right? How would you compare the morale after the shooting? Was it comparable to the low morale of the earthquakes? Uh, I think in terms of, yeah, it's a, it's a really tough thing to compare, right? Like, you're like, oh, um, hmm. So in a way, I mean, the earthquake was a little more indiscriminate in that, like, everyone got shook up. It wasn't like, the earthquake wasn't just, like, just targeting a mosque or anything like that. It's more egalitarian in that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good old nature. It doesn't discriminate. You know how some racists say, I hate everybody equally, but they really don't, right? <laughs> Whereas natural disasters, they kind of do hate everybody equally. Yeah, exactly. Good old mother nature. Actually doesn't discriminate. That's the only thing that doesn't discriminate. People discriminate. Although, technically, if you look at the, that Noah story, God discriminated with a, a flood. He's like, I'm going to save these people, but not these people. And I'm going to flood everybody, except for the guy I'm going to tell the Bible. Yeah, he's a big time bigot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what, what was the question? Like, did they? I've been painting this picture, right? Of how fucked up Christchurch was just after the earthquake. And that, for you, fucked you up so much. You got into meditation. And then there were so many people around you who needed meditation because they were so literally shook up from the earthquake and then they're already in that state and then you had this like mass shooting happen in Christchurch where it was also racially motivated it has to be in a lot of ways worse because it's a culmination they're still traumatized by something that was only like 10 years ago or so and then you had this shit happen yeah I think uh, weirdly enough I think the response of people in Christchurch would be different than if it happened elsewhere because of the earthquakes earlier like if you're already uh, already kind of on the lookout for people around you who are um, 
not handling it. You know, you're like, oh my God, Jim's, <laughs> Jim's clearly not handling it right now. Let's get him out for coffee or something. There's this more of that, that kind of attitude was already kind of prevalent. And so I think if you had, the, I don't know, if you had the mosque shooting in another town in New Zealand, I don't think people be, would have reacted in the same way. There was some amount of solidarity then? Yeah, a huge amount of solidarity. Like I, I'm, I'm not proud of many people, but um, I'm pretty proud of the way New Zealand handled the whole aftermath for, for that event. That was, um, they just straight up banned guns, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, well, high, high capacity assault rifles and the type that uh, are used to shoot a lot of people are are now off the table, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, he just had like people fly down there and the prime minister showed up and um, the whole town was there for people who, you know, how <laughs> white Western folks are about the influx of Muslims to communities is not typically goes without hurdles or, or troubles. There's always people who are like, oh, I don't want, I don't want those type of people here because, you know, they don't believe in the same God or talk the same language or, or look like me or whatever. And uh, Christchurch is a pretty white town. Like it's, you go down there, you're like, well, you know, there's some Asian folks here and then some um, some white folks here, but not a not a lot of Pacific down there compared to like the normal stuff in in New Zealand. And um, yeah, it's really good for them to. It was it was a good outcome. I thought I was really proud of that. And I was like, wow, solid work New Zealand and solid work Christchurch. That was a a good response. So it wasn't just Christchurch itself, but it was the the country itself also kind of came together. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's a whole bunch of quote-unquote debate, which was more along the lines of the people who really enjoyed shooting guns and gun ownership. But, you know, the <sighs> the divide here is very clear between the gun nuts, who are just gun nuts, and people who legitimately use guns to go hunting deer and stuff. And the two parties are not really closely aligned. So the guys who are out there hunting deer uh, are like, yeah, we already use like low, low capacity semi-autos or bolt actions to hunt deer. We're not out there hunting with AR-15s because that's a pointless gun to hunt a deer. That's like you, you suck at shooting. <laughs> Why are you bringing this assault rifle to shoot this animal? There'd be nothing to eat. It'd be like bullet ridden. There's no meat that you could actually eat. Exactly. Like you're out there stalking a deer. You're not, it's not that scene in Predator where they mow down the whole forest. So yeah, the, th those two groups were, were pretty disparate. And so when the government was all like, we're not taking hunting rifles off the table, we're taking assault rifles off the table. The deer hunters were like, oh, okay. <laughs> no, no biggie. And the people who um, have shaved heads and really enjoy gun ownership were like, oh, that's terrible. Uh, what about our what about our first and second amendment rights and so on? And like, oh, that 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 only applies overseas. <laughs> they actually bought into the U.S. propaganda that they thought that every they must watch so much like American right wing shit that they just thought that second amendment was just universal. Oh, our country must have it also. Yeah, and they sent in a bunch of letters and so on to the ministers of parliament citing that. In fact, like you, you know, we have rights for guns it's in the constitution, and they're like. <laughs> Guys, no. <laughs> <laughs> this is New Zealand. You're not in the U.S. That's, that's a whole different country. Um, you know, kudos on being able to read and write well enough to send this letter, but um, maybe apply a little more of that to the, um, you know, the facts. Anyway, so that, that turned out quite well. Um, 
it's one of those kind of like baffling situations where you're just like, well, why did that happen? That's just what, what? Weird. And why in Christchurch? Are you guys the ones who started the whole egging thing? Like egging a fascist? No, that's Australia. Egg Boy is Australia. But it was in direct response to some Australian politician saying something. Uh, Related to this, right? Yeah. And the guy's like, I'm going to hit you with this egg. And I thought it was hysterically funny. Yeah, because I wonder if that was the first incident of that. Because after that, there was egging all over. And then from the egging went to milkshakes. And uh... I think, yeah, I think Egg Boy started off the egging thing. The thing that got in the news in New Zealand a few years ago about like a thrown object at a... Um, New Zealand doesn't have super right-wing politicians, but they've got right-wing, but they're kind of center-right. Anyway, one of those guys got hit in the face with a dildo at a... At a <laughs> which was... Yeah, it's... There you go. The freeze-frame image is hysterically funny. Sounds like a very Kiwi thing to do. Yeah, it was really good. So then are a lot of the far-right politicians more in Australia than not in New Zealand? Uh, we've got them. Um, they just aren't very good at getting into Parliament, which is kind of nice. You know, you got the various kind of libertarian parties and um, socially conservative parties as well. But yeah, thankfully they're, they're pretty fringe. What does libertarian mean in New Zealand? You normally line it up here with the ACT Party, I think. Uh, and it's libertarian, I think, uh, is best interpreted as you don't want to pay taxes because you think taxation is legalized theft. So you want to pay as small amount of taxes as possible. Um, and so that means you have to have as small a government as possible. Uh, and the only way you're going to do that is you have to have a unshaking belief in the efficacy of the free market. So you're like, all the stuff that government would do, like building roads, can be much better done by private road companies. And uh, rich people will pay for those because they want roads. And then they won't um, charge poor people to be on those roads because of the goodness of the heart that exists in the rich. So thankfully, that. Uh, kind of childish argument doesn't hold much sway here. It's um, like New Zealand comes, I guess, uh, from very, very poor people roots. Like the people who came over here were like, we're broke as hell in England and Scotland. Um, we can't afford anything to even get on the ladder here. Let's get on this dangerous boat and sail for a few months and hopefully show up at a place where you get free land. Uh, and then they did that and they showed up here and yeah. So they have a, a strong socialist route. Well, it wasn't really free, right? They took it. Yeah. No, they stole in the classic. <laughs> um, you guys don't have concepts of property ownership. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> so it's like free with air quotes, like in the history of like colonization, whenever you hear free land, that's just code for taking land forcibly. Yeah. Yeah. You have to go back, I think, tens of thousands of years before you get to land, which no one's already on. And so, yeah, you go back, I don't know, 500 years, and it turns out, yeah, there's already people living there. <laughs> you just have to trick them out of it or shoot them. So it was like just like the poor Europeans that came there. Yeah, they're just broke-ass people who I don't think could really afford to make it in their homeland. And they're like, let's strike out for the, the colonies. So they had more uh, class consciousness innately because of that. I think that's how it turned out. I'm, a, I'm no historian, but... Um, yeah, that's how, I, that's how I paint the picture. It's a bunch of class-conscious er people showed up here and were like, all right, let's make a go of it. And then it turns out that if you live on <laughs> very difficult areas and you have to build up a you know a society out of other people who are having a rough time of it, you tend to be like, hey, let's take care of each other so we don't all fall over. 
I'll, I'll give you this jam and you give me that wheat and then, you know, we'll call it a day as opposed to focusing on individual supremacy or anything like that. What was your perspective as a meditation teacher after the shootings? Did you notice a lot of people like that triggered trauma again? A lot of the stress that came from the, and the, I guess the, the issues that came from the mass shooting was, was way different than the, <laughs> than the stress that came out of the earthquake again, because of sort of the targeted nature of it. So people didn't feel like, oh shit, at any moment, like some shooter can come out and kill us all. No, it wasn't like this is an ongoing issue. It was like more just bewilderment. Like, what, what, what the hell was that? Like, uh, a shooting? <laughs> what? As opposed to, oh, it's another mass shooting. I could be next. Uh, yeah, I guess if you have a, a different view on, on the likelihood of mass shootings or the <laughs> inevitability of them, yeah, you don't, you don't freak out as much. You view it as like, holy shit, a meteor hit, hit the ground and squished a guy. You know, like that could be me next getting hit by a meteor. You're just more like, holy shit, like how did <laughs> how did that happen? I, I didn't know meteors even hit on the ground here. Because there's no pattern of it, people more reacted to it like an aberration. Like this isn't normal. Yeah, and again, because the guy was Australian, it was more viewed as like a I can't believe one of those guys came over here and did that, as opposed to any one of us could be like that, um, type situations. So then uh, as a meditation teacher, when you were teaching your classes or, or maybe just with yourself, you didn't notice like too much heightened anxiety post the Christchurch mass shooting. I guess the main thing um, from a meditation perspective is you tend to look a lot at the, at the stories you tell yourself to like justify why you're doing stuff or um, why you think certain things. And so a lot of that was, a lot of that came up where you're like, uh, what do you do? What do you do about Nazis? Like, <laughs> I went, what the hell do you do about it? Like the shooting happened inside of a mosque, right? Yeah. Two of them. So then instead of like the anxiety that the earthquakes brought from your perspective as a meditation teacher, then it was more about, like you said, these kind of thoughts that occur when you're being mindful. And now these new thoughts that occurred, like, what do we do about Nazis? What about racism? Hey, we don't, we're not talking about these social issues. Yeah, exactly. Whereas like, it's pretty easy to fix the earthquake stuff. You're like, make sure the people whose homes got wrecked get their dollars and make sure the new houses you build are up to earthquake code. Okay, problem solved. But if you're like, what do you do about crazy racial tensions and people having access to firearms and... And hatred, right? Yeah, and just straight up hatred people hating other people for their race to the point where they're actually going to go murder a bunch of them. you know like yeah this is um let's take a look internally and see what the story is like how do you uh, i'm obviously anti-nazi but do you have a tolerant society where you're like we tolerate debate about nazism and non-nazism or you're just like is punching nazis in the face or egging them the correct action i don't know so have you been having these kind of conversations with some of your students or people you know yeah, when it comes up, I'm not just like, welcome to mindfulness. Let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about Nazis. Um, but yeah, when the, when those things come up, it's like, yeah, this is an excellent, an excellent opportunity, first of all, to see what we're talking about when we're talking about examining beliefs and examining thoughts and thinking using mindfulness. Cause they're like, well, these are important things to think about and these are important beliefs. And it's good that we, that we know where we stand on this. And 
yeah, have explored them. But yeah, <laughs> how do we how do we go about doing that? Now, have you found for yourself that the act of meditation has made you more social justice oriented? Is there a connection with meditation and egalitarianism or social justice? I think the more time you spend paying attention to um, where you get your thoughts and ideas um, and the influences on you and the, the ways in which you exist within like, oh, I can't eat food unless there is food. And there's this whole web of people out there. That's a whole supermarkets, farmers, etc., who toil day and night to make sure that I have food available to be purchased easily and conveniently tomorrow. Um, yeah, the more time you spend paying attention to that, the more obvious it is that you're not this isolated <laughs> individual who is, yeah, not a part of society and not a part of um, the economy and not a part of culture, etc. And so the more aware you become of that, I guess it's very difficult to be, to have that level of awareness grow and then be like, ah, the hell of it. <laughs> I, I shouldn't do anything about any of this or any of this realization. I should just continue to act and live as though I haven't realized any of this stuff. I think that's, that's not how it works. You can't just know stuff and then pretend that you don't. So yeah, I think the more time you spend examining exactly how connected you are to other people, and you know, where all of your ideas and thoughts come from in terms of, you know, your parents gave you these ideas, your, your school gave you these ideas, um, your friends and, and colleagues gave you a, a discussion about ethics, in which case you're like, huh, yeah, I have a more nuanced understanding about this stuff. So as soon as you realize that what it is to be a human in the way that you are is to be a part of society and a part of culture and a part of all of this stuff. Uh, if you <laughs> if you don't have your mind turn to consider more of that in general, I think that'd be a really weird thing. So, yeah, I think it's it's not a guarantee. You probably could somehow remain self focused entirely and practice mindfulness, but uh, that'd be really weird. Don't underestimate people. <laughs> no, never. <laughs> but it sounds like what you're saying is then mindfulness doesn't always lead you to but mindfulness is a path to this awareness wherever you start whether it's on your breath or focusing on one thing it leads you on a path to interconnectedness where it's how do you not eventually realize we're all connected i got these ideas from this person i got this food from this person oh i live in a society with these people and then i'm actually connected to these people if you keep pursuing mindfulness and you pursuing these thoughts and these realizations you should come to realize we're all connected yeah it would be so the fact of the matter is we're all connected right there's no arguing there like objectively we did any kind of looking at the thing we'd be like oh yeah obviously i live in a society i was raised by other people i'm fed but i don't grow all my own food i'm part of this rep this giant web of connections and then what have you that's the fact of the matter and then uh suppose you're like okay we're now going to do a practice that involves examining exactly these things. Does that guarantee that all people will come to the same conclusion that, oh, yes, I'm clearly a part of this, this group of people? No, you can obviously remain delusional and be like, nope, all me, baby. <laughs> it, again, it would, be, it would be an abnormal conclusion to draw. 
feel like you have all these scientists studying gravity and one of them's all like gravity pulls everything up you're like yeah i guess you could come to that conclusion if you're delusional but that's not the normal conclusion that's just that's a strange outlet what would you do if you had a student who was like no matter how much you tried all the all the observations that they were coming up with were like, I don't know, racist or fascist or like kind of spiteful. Maybe not overtly because they are in a meditation class, but it's like subtly kind of racist or or sexist or whatever. What would you do as a teacher? Uh, Wait, have you ever had this experience? Thankfully, no. I think the Venn diagram that describes people who seek out mindfulness and the people who are like heavily into racial prejudice the overlap there is very, very low. But yeah, I guess, I mean, that that's the kind of student I think who would need all the extra help. Like you wouldn't be like, get the hell out of my class. You'd be like, okay, we really need to, <laughs> we really need to knuckle down and work on some of this stuff. Um, because it's, it's an interesting, interesting role you play as teacher because you can't just be like, no, that's wrong. <laughs> Your insight is incorrect. You'd have to be like, hmm. That's an interesting take on that. Let's let's delve a little deeper. So, I mean, the recipe is the same. You're like, let's unpack that a little. What do you mean by all brown people should go home or whatever? Uh, and why do, why does that keep coming up? So, yeah, I, I mean, you wouldn't want to just kick them out. But, yeah, it would be deeply unsettling, I think, to <laughs> encounter someone who's like, the end of my life in this journey is racial hatred. <laughs> That's where you got? <laughs> <laughs> What were you doing this whole time? They were using apps. It's <laughs> this Headspace app. I love it. <laughs> well, I mean, like in the US, right? There is like a famous uh, meditation teacher who came out with his own app also, but he's also very famous for being very anti-Muslim, right? This guy named Sam Harris. So he's like well-known in the US like meditation world, but he's also very well-known for saying very like Islamophobic things. And he's been meditating forever. And he's also done psychedelics, right? But <laughs> <laughs> it goes back to what I said, like it's the context of how you got there. And uh, I don't know what context uh, that he got to meditation and psychedelics, but I think a lot of the, the prejudice and hate he had, he brought with them into meditation. I don't think meditation taught him those things. It wasn't realizations that he got through it. But the thing about a lot of these guys who are hateful and meditate, I find that they're very good at rationalizing. Yeah, well, you know. I think that's the only way it could work. You got to look at yourself in the mirror, right? And be like, boy, I really hate a lot of things. But for good reason. And here they are. Otherwise, you're just a hateful person. And no one, I don't think really people like to wake up in the morning and look at themselves and be like, Wow, I'm really hateful. Boy, I got a lot of spite. Mm. They don't want to do that? I don't think so. Like, you know, you're brushing your teeth. You're like, boy, I hate everything. That's a really healthy way to be. <laughs> you don't think all the, the world's problems could just be solved tomorrow with just every hateful person just waking up and realizing, damn, I'm a hateful person. I should just get over this. Man, I don't know. Simple solutions. They always work the best, right? This actually, <laughs> this actually goes back to why I hate self-help so much because they do fill you with those delusions that, yeah. It can happen. Like there's this one guy who does teach like mindfulness and meditation and enlightenment. He said he went to bed or he took a nap or something and then he woke up and he was enlightened and he wasn't even trying. And now he knows everything. That's pretty good. <laughs> I like I love naps. So I'm clearly on the right path. And he's a huge like seller of uh, self-help books. He just makes tons of money doing this shit. 
Well, a lot of a lot of people need help, I guess, and we'll accept the napping gurus <laughs> version of events. You don't need any training, man. You just need to like just decide, <laughs> just decide that you will be enlightened, and there you go. Well, obviously, I mean, if you needed training, then the per- first person who ever got enlightened, how did they get there? Maybe they just decided and <laughs> took a nap one day, and were like. Oh, I should write some books. <laughs> is that the logic? Maybe, but I mean, it is an interesting question. Like if, if such a thing as enlightenment and it requires training, then how did the first person get there? Were they training in something sideline? And we're like, you know, this is actually a pretty good way to get enlightened. Oh my God, I am. Or whatever. But if you are somebody who already has a grand sense of self, right, you're very grandiose and you're just full of ego, then, of course, you would think you would be the chosen one. Well, of course. That's kind of like what you're describing, right? Like, then I will be the source. I will be the first one. I will be that one that can train others. But I don't need training because I'm the chosen one. It's, I mean, unfortunately, I think a lot of uh, (laughs) meditation literature has a lot of easily <laughs> misinterpretable stuff where they're like, oh, uh, mind is a universe. You're like, oh, cool. That must mean that my mind is the whole universe. I'm obviously, I'm, I'm the expression of the pure universe itself, but in alpha form. I'm just going to nap one day and that's it. So, I mean, I can see a lot of people pulling a lot of weird stuff out of, <laughs> out of context and being like, oh, I, I read this book and then obviously it says that stuff. Uh, I'm pretty great. So yeah, here we go. Well, with that guy, he didn't even read any books, right? He just woke up and knew everything. So (laughs) it probably has more to do with the weird movies he watched. (laughs) Probably. Probably. I think I've seen that a couple of times. Not the napping, but you know, the, the chosen one is born. And then it turns out he already knows Kung Fu. Yeah, yeah. Harry Potter to the Matrix to a lot of like Disney movies are like that, right? Like you don't need training to be the hero. It was in you all along. It just needed to be awakened. And then like all of a sudden they're glowing. And then now it's like, oh shit, I had all this power. I had no idea. And then they were a wizard this whole time or they had, they were the long lost heir to some magical throne. And has anything, anything done more terrible news for like, people actually training and stuff than the phrase, it was in you all along. Oh God. That's almost as bad as fake it till you make it. <laughs> Maybe they go hand in hand. Well, you know what the trifecta to that is, is uh, if you build it, they will come. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. But at least if you build it, they will come involves some building. <laughs> That's true. There's something there. You got to at least make the baseball field. You don't just wake up one morning after a nap and someone has made a baseball field and now <laughs> it was in you all along. If you build it, they will come is when you start trying to make it into a business. That's good. Monetize. Yeah. So then you build it and then they will just come. Makes sense. All these people tell you that it was never going to work, but <laughs> they were just haters. As a meditation teacher, then do you ever have students come to you with their heads filled with all the self-help nonsense that you gotta, you gotta like deprogram? The nice thing about the whole meditation experience is you get to get to pay attention to your thinking and you get to pay attention to the strong desire to make things to to embetter yourself so you're like oh i'm gonna 
I'm going to do these things and I'm going to make myself better and my life will be better. And um, that just that simple paying attention to that does an awful lot of a huge amount of work for the deprogramming of the ridiculous bullshit that people come up with. Um, you're like, OK, uh, let's pay attention to the secret where if you really, really want something and you make a secret wish, the secret universe will grant your secret wishes or whatever. You're like, okay, that's really cool. Let's suppose it's true and let's sit down and pay attention to it and pay attention to your thinking around it. Let's let's see what that actually looks like. And then who who knew that by paying attention to the bunch of that stuff, you're like, oh, <laughs> this is all ridiculous nonsense. Not saying that like mindfulness magically cures you of ridiculous nonsense, but it's like how uh, if you say it out loud to somebody, somehow that can do an awful lot of work to <laughs> make you realize how ridiculous you sound. You know, like it's the same with philosophy. Like you spend a lot of time up typing at like three o'clock in the morning. You're like, this is this is genius. <laughs> I've really hit on something. And the next the next day, you're like, so I was thinking about this stuff. Uh, last night at three o'clock in the morning, and this is what I came up with. Blah 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 blah. And you're like, oh, holy shit! Saying it out loud, I realize <laughs> what a bunch of insane bullshit that was. Um, and look at all the crazy flaws in it. But you don't normally spot that when you're all caught up in it. And so, yeah, I guess uh, I don't. Thankfully, I don't have to do a lot of quote unquote deprogramming or whatever. I just go, that's interesting. Let's <laughs> let's pay some attention to that. Like, let's let's look at exactly that. What would that look like? What what is this story and why do you want why do you want this story to be true? Let's take a look at that. Yeah, that's an important one. Why do you want to believe this? Why do you want this to be true? Yeah. I mean, the nice thing is once you start really paying attention to stuff, uh everything's all right right now. Like if you you literally have all the all the stuff you need to be perfectly happy right now. And if you don't, you're screwed. But um <laughs> like if you can't pay rent and you're about to be evicted and all that stuff. Yeah, that's that's all externally stuff. But right now, um, right now we're just sitting in this mindfulness class. Oh, you mean literally right then in the moment? You're not talking about that day, but in the moment while they're sitting in the meditation, like that ten minutes or whatever. Yeah. Where right then and there, that little capsule, you're okay. Right. All those external worries will still be there, waiting for you after you're out of that capsule. But for right now, while you're doing this, you're okay. They're all at the door right now. Yeah, they're waiting for you. Don't worry. They're not going anywhere. <laughs> They're not going anywhere. Your rent problems will be there after class. But, I mean, everything's everything's a-okay right now. And so the nice thing about a-okay right now is it actually stretches out quite a lot. Like, if you pay a lot of attention to what's actually happening right now, like, even if you're in terrible situations, it's not actually terrible right now. Most of the time. <laughs> anyway, so um, the long and the short of it is, like, if you get a, a much better grip on that, then uh, a lot of the grasping for for making things a lot better through self-help naturally dies away. So you're like, actually, what am I really improving on? Really? Like, even if this mystical map journey works, does do things really need to be made better? Aren't they just fine right now? <laughs> At first, I thought you were going to say, oh, you know, like meditation and the people who are attracted to it <laughs> aren't so interested in self-help. But instead, you were more like, Sounds like you run into a lot of those people, but the nice thing about meditation is once you have people focusing on these things, you yourself don't have to do a lot of the deprogramming. They kind of deprogram themselves. Yeah, exactly. I think the people who, yeah, 
if you're interested in mindfulness, a lot of the time that comes from a self-help or a self-improvement standpoint. <laughs> so they do come to you infected. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's all out there, man. You probably thought you heard every kind of different self-help weird mantras. And through doing this work as a meditation teacher, you're probably running into all kinds of new shit all the time. You're like, what? That's what they believe now? What? That's what they're telling people now? <laughs> yeah, I love it. I hadn't heard the nap one. I love that. I don't know how you make money out of that. How do you monetize the nap? Like there's a whole world of giving talks, right? So you could charge X number of dollars doing talks. You sell books. You write books about the weird observations, conclusions, realizations you came up with after the nap. But if you just have all this information products like books to online modules to like your secret book club to like your membership websites and all this stuff, you're just making money while you're sleeping. <laughs> Damn it. I'll never make it big. I just need to nap properly. That was where you went wrong. You shouldn't have. Uh... Yeah, all this. I did, I did non-productive napping. I should have done productive napping. God damn. Yeah, you should have went the other way. Instead of wakefulness, you had to go do sleepiness. and uh... <laughs> Awakening through sleeping. God damn. It's, it's beautiful. Don't ever wake up. Just keep sleeping. And then if you're always sleeping, then you could keep dreaming. And then you never have to give up on your dreams. Buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good way to end this. So is there a way for people to get in touch with like your work or read uh, your thoughts or anything? Anything you want to plug? You have uh, online stuff? Uh, no, not at all. No. Okay, guys, that's it. <laughs> I guess you can get, contact me by email, but um, I don't read very much of it. You came on to talk about meditation and uh, that's it. And you don't have to have a whole thing of like, and here's all these things that I'm selling that you guys can buy. That's true. It is entirely purposeless. And that's the whole point of philosophy. It's just, just do things and uh, for no reason. Yeah, yeah. Just contemplate on all this stuff for no reason that we just talked about today. And, uh, and there you go. Yeah, and take up some mindfulness. That's my recommendation. And then if you ever have like uh, something that you want to monetize, then you could always come back. Yeah, um, the napping, I think, sounds really good. I'm interested in that. Nap till you wake. It's a sign of the times, man. <laughs> do nothing. Get everything. Actually, there's the title of your book, Do Nothing, Get Everything, Secrets to Mindfulness by Alex Ferguson. Excellent. Well, thanks for having me on, man. It's been a big good chatting.